Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing the big one, the double-size final issue number 15 of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Uh, Needless to say, spoilers will abound, so if you haven't read this issue or any other Mage comics, well, you've been warned. I want to start off, first of all, with an apology for this being so late. I'm finally recovering from a few rounds of sickness, um, allergies, bronchitis. I'm going to try recording this, and hopefully I'll be able to make it through without coughing every 30 seconds, one minute or so on. We'll see how it goes. Before I get on to this, I want to thank the listeners, all of you. This has been a wild ride. It's been a really cool follow-up act to the uh, Hero Defined website and forum that I ran back in the late 90s when Hero Defined, Mage the Hero Defined, was coming out. Back then, I had the good fortune of making some new friends as a result of that endeavor, and this time has been equally rewarding. I'm not going to have time to mention everyone, so please, if we've connected on Facebook or Instagram or through mail and chatted or exchanged enthusiastic comments, and I don't mention you by name, well, then this first shout-out goes to all of you. Thanks for following on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the podcast, to comment or like random mage posts that have been out there, uh, you name it. I feel like I'm Coming out on the other side of this here with an expanded circle of mage fan friends, and that's really fantastic. I first want to give a shout out to uh, Eli and Manis from the Can I Thwip It podcast. It's been a blast exchanging podcast shout outs with you guys, and it was a real treat getting to drop in on your podcast in person to enjoy some Nashville hot chicken, some amazing comics, uh, and some really green magic and mage talk. Eli, your comics and zines are super fun, and Manis, I can't wait to hear when you drop new tracks. Uh, you uh, were teasing a mage piece a while back ago. Uh, if you're ever going to record that, I'm sure people would love to hear it. Um, Steve Fritzinger, thanks for coming out of the podcast to share how you built your custom light-up mage bat for your Kevin Matchstick cosplay. Your ever-growing skills as a maker both for cosplay and just in general are inspiring. John Petz, thanks for the thought-provoking emails. Uh, Jamie Ashby, thanks for helping me uh, have faith that my Instagram posts, especially the early ones, weren't totally lost in the internet wilderness. Uh, I hope one day to be as cool as your shoe collection. Uh, Robbie Reed, thanks for the good vibes and support for the pod. And... Special thanks to everyone who contributed to the eight reasons you should be reading Matt Wagner's Mage article. Uh, Especially thanks to John K. Snyder 3 for sharing his thoughts, as well as to C.W. Balance, David Conine, and Andrew Edge, among others, including Michael Pincus, who's been reviewing this series at the Blackgate website. Always great insights over there, and he'd been kind enough to mention this podcast at times in his reviews. And thanks, of course, to both Matt and Brennan Wagner for their support and encouragement of the podcast, uh, to Brennan's wife, Celeste, for putting me in contact with her colorful husband, 
that Kevin Matchstick and Mirth cosplay that you two did at uh, NYCC uh, was awesome. And with that, let's get on to the episode. When we last left our heroes, the separated parent-child pairings were both in very dire straits. Magda and Hugo were surrounded by a swarm of Lihan Shi, tiny little bat-like creatures that are all razor-sharp wings and teeth. And they were so surrounded that the panels had slowly filled more and more with the little flying bastards, those little flying monsters that mother and son were totally surrounded, just blotted out literally in a sea of black. And Miranda had just been knocked to the ground, possibly killed, by the last threshold guardian in the Umbra Sprite stronghold. Issue 14 ended with Kevin Matchstick holding his collapsed daughter in his arms, shouting out no in anguish for the third time since this long journey began. This issue starts with a panel that is full of just darkness, that is burst apart by a bubblegum explosion of pink magic bubbles. And when the pyrotechnics clear, we see Magda with her enchanted blow dryer in hand, still smoking from the blast. Hugo is still tucked in a protective ball from the attacking razor teeth nasties. The duo is surrounded by the scattered corpses and remains of numerous Lihan Shi. And this is nice because while all of these magic items that Magda had uh, gathered inside their posh prison cell and enchanted had magicked into weapons, we're just seeing them here or there sporadically. It's been just long enough to forget without going back exactly what did they have on them, what didn't they have on them. So this was a surprise to me. I'd completely forgotten about the enchanted blow dryer and, uh, you know, wondering going into this issue, you know, what's going to happen? Obviously, you know, thinking they're going to survive, but how are they going to make it through it? So that was a was a great reveal. Um, so as the two recover, uh, an outburst of fairy speak from off panel draws Magda's attention to her familiar Cleo, who is still covered in tacking Leon Shi. Uh, she lets loose another blast from the enchanted hairdryer. It clears the dark fairies from her feline familiar, but the combination of the vicious attack and the blast from the magic gun have taken Cleo down. Now, Magda is normally able to feel Cleo, to feel her familiars. They're connected. That's how she knew that uh, her last familiar had passed away when their house had been attacked. She tells Hugo that she can't feel Cleo anymore, and uh, the two press on. Magda passes her hat on to Hugo, who protests that it's a girl's hat, but she insists that he needs the added protection, and they continue to search for Kevin in the caverns. Speaking of whom, at this point, we rejoin a distraught Kevin matchstick. But despite Miranda's condition, Mirth seems totally dispassionate. His body language is totally closed off with crossed arms. And in the fourth panel, when he tells Kevin uh, that uh, she'll not long survive such a trauma, his eyes are just flat, cold. Even after informing Kevin that his daughter has suffered massive internal injuries 
and has many shattered bones from the backhanded strike from uh, as. Uh, uh, as Karash, I, I don't have the name in front of me, but uh, from the last Portal Guardian. And again, Mirth repeats one of his often uh, well-repeated comments uh, that what powers he has left must be held in reserve lest the Pendragon fail. But, but Kevin insists. Mirth has to help. He grabs Mirth by the robe and just insists that if his daughter dies, then he has failed. And under protest... Mirth uses his magic, green infusing the little girl until he just staggers back, seemingly just overwhelmed and, you know, just exhausted from the effort. And Mirth informs Kevin that while magic can mend that which is broken, her body must revive at its own pace. She will live for now and waken soon. So that's an interesting uh, choice of words. She'll live for now. Is his magic not strong enough? Is the healing only temporary? This is just another one of many strange statements from Mirth ever since uh, he has reappeared in the in the closing issues of this story. And at this point, the stress of this last expenditure has turned Mirth's hair white again, and he goes on about uh, the struggle extracting a heavy toll that the Green River has claimed much from him. Indeed, he claims that to wield it again would burn and blind him with its radiance, that here in the heart of their enemy's lair, they have lost their final defense. Which is interesting in itself, since Mirth has always claimed that he's the mentor, Kevin the student, he is the mage, Kevin the hero. This is Kevin's job, not Mirth's. And, you know, not for the first time in their long history, Kevin and Mirth argue. Mirth cautions Kevin to not be so assured that victory is at hand and reminds him of what happened to the original Pendragon. And Kevin insists that he knows about the tragedies that befell Arthur, that he was betrayed by his wife, killed by his son. And the two continue to argue. And when Kevin mentions that maybe the Sumerian can conquer what the Pendragon can't, Mirth starts to reply that the Sumerian's fate wasn't any cakewalk either, or at least it seems that's what he's about to say, since they get interrupted by Miranda awakening. Uh, this is pretty fortunate, since it seems that Kevin and Mirth are just going to go in circles, with Mirth urging caution, maybe too much caution. You know, he wasn't this concerned about Kevin's safety the last time he sent him into the Umbra Sprite's stronghold, and that was just when his power was in first bloom. So so let's look at a few things here. Mirth states that Kevin carries Arthur's legacy, and while he might not be bound by Arthur's failures and frailties, that Kevin isn't immune to them either. He warns Kevin to beware lest the same tragedies strike Kevin's house. Now, Arthur's fate, according to legend, was unfortunate, to say the least, on many fronts. While a skilled leader... Arthur was destined to be betrayed both romantically by his wife and by family blood by his son. One of the most famous Arthurian tales originated, in fact, in France, and that was the love story of Lancelot and Guinevere. And I am going to mispronounce names left and right coming up, so you've been warned. Uh, the, and here's the first one. The 12th century poet, uh, Cretain de Troyes, 
gave us an account of the romance of Lancelot and Guinevere in his tale, Lancelot or Knight of the Cart. And uh, since there are no stories before this that mention Lancelot, it is assumed that uh, Chrétien invented him. Uh, Lancelot, in the larger cycle of Arthurian tales, you know, has secured his place as, you know, perhaps the greatest knight of the round table. He is described as Arthur's most trusted ally, but it was his forbidden love for Queen Guinevere that truly made him famous. Now, in the original tale, it would seem Guinevere um, actually spurns Lancelot love. Lancelot's love. Now, this isn't due to her love of Arthur. Uh, for reasons not really worth getting on into here right now, he was actually deemed by her to not be worthy of her affection. But eventually, the story of Lancelot and Guinevere's love uh, became the illicit tawdry affair, which ultimately triggered the events that lead to the end of Arthur's reign. So, one, Guinevere betrays Arthur. Now, in the Arthurian cycle, she does this as part of an affair. Um, as, uh, as the echoes of this tragic history impact Kevin's world, you know, it seems that that forbidden tryst between Lancelot and Guinevere kind of manifests itself as the non-consensual vampiric rape, actually, of Magda by the Incubus in issue number seven. That's possibly the most explicit example of something like that, um, you know, impacting into or echoing into the matchstick... Uh, into the matchstick hunter world. The second betrayal occurs while Arthur is away from the throne. He's involved in battles on the continent. His son, or in some cases his nephew, Mordred, who had been left in charge, rebels and usurps the throne. Now, this and other various intrigues, depending on the source you choose, lead to something called the Battle of Camlin. Now, mind you, in the Romantic tradition... Um, Arthur is away from the throne pursuing Lancelot for the aforementioned affair. So whatever the case, Arthur is away. He's either pursuing Lancelot or he's uh, off in, in, in battle. And Mordred seizes the throne. Uh, the actual cause of the battle varies from source to source, but the end result is typically something along the lines of this. Arthur kills Mordred in a duel, but is also mortally wounded. Arthur tasks a knight with returning his sword, Excalibur, to the Lady of the Lake, and the king is taken to Avalon. The uh, more mythically-minded tales say that on Avalon, Arthur recovered from his wounds, where he waits to return to England at some future time when his countrymen need him most. This is why Arthur is often referred to as the once and future king. And there's a particular phrase in Latin... Um, you know, here lies Arthur, once in the future king, which actually had been used in some early uh, mage hero discovered advertising before the uh, before the issue fourteen big reveal that that uh, Kevin is actually an incarnation of Arthur. So Arthur's tale carries with it the double jeopardy of betrayal by both wife and son. But this seems pretty far-fetched from what we've seen. I mean, sure, there's been definitely been some tension between Magda and Kevin at some times. And while the Incubus's attack, you know, by its pseudo-sexual nature carried implied overtones of the illicit affair between Lancelot and Guinevere, well, the same dynamics have just not been at play here. And Hugo, <laughs> Hugo's 
no Mordred. Certainly shows no signs of that. Um, enthusiastic, over-enthusiastic, a little bit reckless perhaps, but uh, he doesn't seem like a Mordred. So I think Kevin's got a pretty good handle on this. So that's Arthur. Now let's talk about the Sumerians' fate, which, you know, Mirth starts to say of Gilgamesh that neither was his fate any, and then he gets cut off. Now, this is puzzling to me. For all the drama surrounding Arthur's fall, the Sumerian, well, his ending is much less dramatic. Gilgamesh, one could say, was the original superhero. Two-thirds god, one-third man. He built a great and beautiful city. He was handsome, insanely strong, and wise, and, you know, great in all kinds of manners and ways that, even with this being an explicit podcast, I'm not going to get into just now. That said, having all that power and skill, when his story begins, Gilgamesh is actually a pretty cruel ruler. He's, he's, a, he's a bit of a fuck. His amazing city has been built with forced labor. His subjects are exhausted under his oppression. He took whatever he wanted from his subjects, and frankly, that included raping any women who struck his fancy. Her status didn't matter, and if his fancy was taken by the wife of one of his warriors or the daughter of a nobleman, well, tough. What are you going to do? Now, mind you, we are going back millennia here. Um, you know, there was no Me Too movement back then, you know, different times. But this is really, even then, this is not being stated as, you know, ideal behavior. Um, in fact, the gods heard his subjects' pleas, and in order to put Gilgamesh back in line, and out of mercy for mankind... The god Anu creates the wild man named Enkidu. Um, now, Enkidu is raised among the animals. He's strong. He's inhumanly handsome and almost as strong as Gilgamesh. And he's eventually, without getting into the details of it, he's eventually drawn to civilization after hearing of Gilgamesh's tyrannical rule to come to challenge him. And indeed, he, uh, when he comes into the city... One of his first acts is to block Gilgamesh from taking someone's new bride for his own, which is an interesting action coming from this wild man. I mean, he is he is representative of nature in the wild. He's been raised with animals until he had been introduced to a certain measure of humanity. Um, so he comes in to um, to 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 basically help uh, help save this couple's honor in a way, and the two battle. And according to the texts. Uh, they battle um, in the street they attacked each other the public square of the land the door posts trembled and the wall shook uh, this is one epic battle most of which we won't know the details of because 42 lines between the, the 42 lines between the start of this battle and the end of it are missing literally lost to time Gilgamesh, however, the stronger of the two, eventually wrestles Enkidu to the ground. And proving that throughout time, bros will be bros, the two are now fast friends and adventuring companions. 
And there are such adventures which I really can't cover here and now. But um, long story short, they managed to uh, piss off the gods. And uh, by way of justice, um, the gods kill Enkidu in return. Now, there are parts of Enkidu's story and death that inform and echo in the hero defined and definitely lead to the rage of Arishkagal that was seen early in, earlier in uh, Hero Denied. But for the sake of this part of the story, speaking about how Gilgamesh's story ends, I mean, yes, it's sad. He loses his friend Enkidu. And after Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh seeks, goes off to seek the secret of immortality. And really his journey through this ultimately is that um, the quest for immortality is futile, that creation contains within itself, you know, both uh, both life and the seed of death. It is impossible to escape death. And Gilgamesh is returned to Uruk, um, basically having become wiser and learned that uh, one's life is measured not just by wealth, fame, or power, but also the quality of time they spent and, and the people they surround them with and how they comport themselves. I mean, he returns as a wiser, more benevolent king than when his story begins. Now, there may be some other aspects to this story. Um, I can't I can't find them. But, I mean, it is a harsh—he does learn a hard lesson. I mean, he comes down. He, you know, he's, he thinks he's the shit. And, um, you know, Gilgamesh is, at least to, in a certain regard, brought low or brought back down to earth um, in this discovery and losing his friend and, and not being able to obtain immortality. So, so this back and forth between Mirth and Kevin is ultimately— interrupted by Miranda rising and she's still shaky so Kevin carries her he picks up his bat and the trio head off and Mirth helpfully asks Kevin that's your last bat isn't it to which Kevin replies shut up mage so all in all in some ways things haven't changed at all between Kevin and Mirth it would seem but as they are about to brace the enemy in his stronghold Mirth certainly seems to be undermining Kevin and causing more doubt than just providing cautious advice. Let's contrast this with the first time that Kevin entered the sticks at the climax of the hero Discovered, the uh, stronghold of the Umbra Sprite. Kevin entered the sticks from the top of the building. Um, here he's entering from the bottom, through uh, the caverns underneath, or perhaps in fact within. In Hero Discovered, Mirth stayed outside to keep the portal into and out of the sticks open. Now, at that time, he was telling Kevin to take the fight to the oppressors, and in fact, at that time, to be careful not to overshoot when he's jumping from one building to the next. After all, he's in touch with his power. He has the bat, his first bat, as it were. And here he is, down to his last bat, but far from weaponless, since Excalibur is in him. So the, the at-odds banter here might be familiar, but Mirth's general tone of doubt, that's new. 
You know, previously, their arguments had been tied to Mirth pushing Kevin forward, not trying to temper him. We return to the Umbra Sprite's office at this point, to a very cool, raw panel of the Fisher King strung up in front of the mysterious monster in a picture frame. It's as large as ever now, dwarfing the cripple, one eye open wide, and two or more gaping mouths open and ready to eat. And the Fisher King goes on a bit about being here to bear witness, and despite the urgings and desires of the other Gracklethorns, Carol remains firm. He stays untouched until the Umber Sprite returns. And in the ensuing argument, of course they're arguing. These They, they get along exactly as you would expect um, ruthlessly self-interested, egocentric monsters to get along. Um, the bloodthirsty and cruel, um, you know, uh, Gracklethorn... Um, Zofia steals away and has made her way to the caverns to confront Magda and Hugo. And Zofia points out to them that she found the duo thanks to what she heard from the Pixie Swarm. And this is some nice uh, character beats or building here for Zofia that builds upon tiny actions of hers from the very beginning of the series. You know, all the way back in issue one, she's the Gracklethorn that receives word of Kevin Matchstick being found uh, from a tiny dark fairy, whom she then eats. And, you know, one thing I'll say about the Gracklethorns, on one hand, they don't get a lot of opportunity for character development, but it is, sure, a whole bunch more than their brothers, the Grackleflints, had. And light years beyond Emile's uh, spawned um, minimal, how his minimal skate punks develop you know those always struck me those um spriggenflints always struck me as being vaguely related to the hockey demon kids from kevin smith's dogma um you know certainly some of the thorns get a little more full body development than the others but zofia has been a joy especially with so much of her character coming across in her often wordless glee and suffering like when she rejoices in issue number six as the skeletal remains of failed Fisher King candidates shower down from the cages hanging in the abyss pit. Um, Magda and Zofia fight, with Zofia coming out the victor and dragging Magda away unconscious after Magda claims Hugo had fallen into the chasm during their scuffle. Now, this is a really good action sequence for Magda, but she doesn't ultimately stand a chance against the nimble monster. Still, even with her face gripped firmly by Zofia's inhuman chalk-white claw, Magda manages to give her a strong kick to the face before having her head just brutally smacked against a rock wall. Uh, it would have been easy, I suppose, to have the entire family you know, be a backdrop to Kevin, the hero, but in their own way they all have a heroic beats uh, throughout this story, and especially as this comes to an end in, in different degrees. Uh, Matt Wagner could never have planned when he wrote Mage, the hero discovered that he would have a wife and two children by the time Hero Denied rolled around. But the family being his third circle of heroes maintains a dynamic that was set up in the hero Discovered. Um, in Discovered, the hero, Kevin, has three heroic companions, Mirth, Edsel, and Sean. In Defined, again, there's a core group of three companions, Joe Fat, Kirby Hero, and Wally Utt, and now his family, 
Magda, Hugo, and Miranda. So it's, uh, it's nice how that's been developed across, across the stories. At the same time, Miranda, uh, at the same time, um, you know, Kevin, Miranda, and Mirth approach the final passageway, the entrance, Mirth claims, to the very heart of the Umbra Sprite's dark domain. And for the second time uh, in the story, Mirth urges Kevin not to bring Miranda with him. It is too dangerous, and Kevin insists that she stays with him. And Mirth acquiesces, but not before urging Kevin to look through the portal and see what's occurring in the enemy's stronghold. And at that moment, um, what should be happening? But Magda is coming to, surrounded by the Gracklethorns. And this scene, man, talk about a totally unexpected turn of events. So after the battle with Olga, the fight with Zofia... Sasha blows an enchanted kiss to Magda, who is immediately under some sort of spell. Um, her eyes are like the Gracklethorns. They've gone white and pupilless as Sasha puts her enchanted pearl necklace on Magda. And in a spectacular spray of black magic Kirby dots, the evil magic restores her, heals her. Heck, it even fixes her hair into a bun. And her clothes change to this glamorous black leather dress complete with arm-length leather gloves, more traditionally glamorous than the uh, leather outfits worn by the various thorns, but completely fitting in with their overall theme. And given the recent vacancy in their ranks and Magda's resilience, Sasha offers Magda to join them, to fill their ranks. All she has to do is sip the black, thick nectar from the dark fountain. And Magda is clearly not herself, and she's not lunging at the opportunity, but more befuddled, easily led by the Gracklethorn through this transformation and following her to the fountain. And this next scene is glorious. I, I don't know how many times I've said that during this podcast, but really, this issue is full of great beats and sequences, uh, like that last one with Magda. But here we are. We're on the cusp, and things are just starting to take a turn. Kevin is blown away by what he is seeing. I mean, apparently just looking in in time to see Magda with the Gracklethorns dressed in black, just like them, approaching the fountain, calling them sisters. And the artwork, the pacing of this sequence, the coloring, it all shines. There's the yellow glow from the entrance, um you know, surrounding the visions of Magda. And that's reminiscent of the yellow glow from Magda's broken scrying mirror. So there's nice use of colors there to kind of call back and imply, you know, mystical, uh, you know, mystical manners of sight. Uh, the close-up of Mirth speaking urgently into Kevin's ear. And it's a small touch, but I really like the small aura outline of purple surrounding Kevin and Mirth as Kevin... Uh, much in a way that Magda is falling under the sway of the Gracklethorns, Kevin starts to fall under the sway of Mirth's words, something about his eyes almost making him look like he's beginning to get enchanted as well. And Mirth, calling back in a manner to Guinevere's betrayal of Arthur, the tragic history of his past incarnation, pours gasoline on the fire of Kevin's stunned doubt telling Kevin that she has <coughs> that she has joined the enemy, <laughs> betrayed him, 
but that he must not let Arthur's defeat become his own. Much like Magda, as mirth goes on, Kevin continues to get underneath this spell or this influence. His eyes are wide, his pupils fading as well, until mirth ultimately tells Kevin with an evil, just an evil look on his face, kill the bitch and be done. And, you know, if it wasn't for Miranda, who knows what would happen here. This is just a great opportunity, again, to give the kids a chance to play a role in this, a story-changing role. Kevin is in shock, possibly, again, under some kind of spell in a manner of speaking, when Miranda, in a football helmet and cleats, kicks Mirth in the leg wrappings and hurts him, which, well, it's strange, since technically speaking... Mirth has no legs below the knees. In fact, for someone who typically prefers floating, Mirth has been doing a lot of walking, even through the hills of bone dust on their way, approaching the entrance to the Umbra Sprite Citadel. But, you know, maybe that's all because of his limited access to green magic. However, in a most unmirth-like manner, the mage seizes Miranda, calling her an impudent brat, and a black forked tongue emerges from his mouth. The battle, this battle is enough to pull Kevin from his daze. Small little sparkles of explosions going off around his head, indicating an, an external influence like an intoxication or spell as he denies what he's seeing. And you know what's gone? That light purple aura outline. And Miranda shouts for her dad, and Kevin does something you'd never think you'd ever see. He just outright slams Mirth with his flared-up bat, with the force of Excalibur, sending the mage backwards. But again, there's that black forked tongue emerging from his mouth as he's knocked back. And Kevin questions what's up with Mirth, that the Mirth he knew would never have Kevin abandon his daughter or wife. And how is it that a world mage is actually injured by green magic, let alone being kicked in the leg? But the mage whirls on Kevin, stating to have suffered much to guide Kevin here, and the three must be united for despair to be unleashed. And we see something now that we've seen before, Mirth's form giving way to black shadow snakes, two emerging from his eyes, one from his mouth, his fingers having all transformed to individual snakes. And the last time we saw this was when the Umbra Sprite claimed to have felt a presence it hadn't felt in many years, before it transformed into a pile of snakes. And sure enough, the Umbra Sprite casts aside the robe and wrappings, transforming into a mass of black snakes, similar though to those that were found surrounding Emil throughout Mage the Hero Defined, and pushes Kevin through the portal as his last bat dissolves from bearing the power of Excalibur. So yeah, all this time, Mirth was really the Umbra Sprite. So there's that. What's nice about this is that there were clues all along, but also just enough supporting evidence to make it plausible that this really was Mirth. There had been times when Mirth had mentioned that using magic could be a strain. The instance I mentioned earlier about Mirth holding a portal open into the sticks, he tells Kevin that the spell is exhausting, so Mirth could have been off fighting the good fight during his absence uh, from Kevin and borne great injuries. Could have taxed his capabilities? Certainly. Seems legit. But let's look at the evidence. 
Now, for a while on this podcast, I've been avoiding talking about this directly. I'm going to share a segment that I cut from from a review of issue number 12, the issue where Mirth appeared at the very end. I mean, for the entire series, we've been wondering, who's the third mage? Where is the third mage? And with that great reveal, a la Mirth's return from the ATM and Hero Discovered, there he was. Mirth. Fan favorite. Here to, well, not save the day, but to help our completely lost and virtually clueless hero. Pretty much what he's always done. But as I was getting ready to record that episode of the podcast about issue number 12, I kept looking at the last page, at Mirth's appearance, and something kept nagging me about it. I really couldn't put my finger on it, and then I just had to accept it. As much as I really liked seeing Mirth, there was something about the look on his face that just bugged me. So here's here's what I deleted um, from that excerpt, the notes that never got recorded. As awesome as it is to see Mirth returned, something keeps bothering me. And um, it's his hair. You see, Mirth's hair turned white in the hero discovered. It turned white as a shock trauma effect of his extended stay in the barren, pure green realms. Now, nothing says Mirth has been hiding in the green realms all this time like he did in Hero Discovered. He and Kevin simply parted ways at some point. He returned briefly, transforming Wally Ut into his Mirth self, and then reverted to his Wally Ut persona. At that time, his hair was still white, and I suppose... Over the course of ten years or so, his hair may have turned black again. Or maybe there's some variant of living backwards in time at play, so this is an earlier version of Mirth we're meeting. All sorts of relatively benign possibilities. And one very nasty possibility. One very nasty, kind of cuckoo crazy possibility. You see, I kept thinking about the Umbra Sprite's latest gambit. Something that was so dangerous... He claimed he would certainly be maimed, or it claimed that it would certainly be maimed and damaged by the effort. And the Umbra Sprite now wants Kevin to find his way to Archeron to his headquarters. He must. And the Umbra Sprite is a black shade. So could the Umbra Sprite's gambit be to submerge itself into the Green Realms, suffer the injury and damage of pure green magic, waiting for Kevin Matchstick to reach out? and then come forth disguised as Mirth, the perfect, trustworthy guide to lead Kevin to the enemy? You know, the only outward manifestations of its true self being the inky black hair matching its true dark form. I mean, it's great seeing Mirth, and that is a smile on his face, but you know, maybe it's not quite as friendly a look on his face as I would expect. I mean, I don't expect a big sloppy grin on his face. Um, but... You know, Matt's art style has changed enough in certain details between discovered, denied, defined, that, you know, I'm hard put to read Mirth's face here. It seems like a somewhat appropriate look for the situation, but maybe just a touch too hard at the same time. A little too sardonic of a smile and look in the eyes. And I know just a touch too angular around the face. Like I said, could be nothing. But I'm going to be watching very closely to see what's up with Mirth here. After all, this is Mage 3. We still haven't seen the third mage. And it seems strange to have the first mage show up before the third one is evident. Okay, so 
that's what I had to say upon the closing of issue number 12. And as I later read issue 13, I became more convinced that this is the Umbra Sprite in disguise. Although, frankly, I had my doubts at times. Was I overthinking things? The damnable thing was that it could actually be some battle-scarred, more experienced mirth, and that he is exactly who he seems to be. Even with my initial suspicion, it was easy to read it both ways, and, you know, it's very likely, you know, that Matt wrote it that way so that you could read it both ways so that you'd be just as uncertain as I was. Even though I felt really sure on one hand, I kept thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm taking a red herring here. All right. Uh, another example, outside the Citadel, Mirth falls in pain foreseeing disaster and heartache around Kevin's wife and son. He's in pain from the vision. So this calls back all the way to issue number two of Hero Discovered. When Mirth had a vision of Edsel at risk from attack, he doubles over in pain, actually falling out of the sky, uh, claiming that the sight comes on unexpectedly and the beginning is painful. But, you know, there were comments that seemed like the Umbra Sprite was outright humble bragging at times when Mirth was talking about the great danger they faced, or how Kevin's lightning blast at the Umbra Sprite at the end of Harrow Defined was little more than a pinprick to an elephant. You know, throughout their time together, all Mirth does, or all the Umbra Sprite disguised as Mirth does, is so doubt. The Umbra Sprite is so overwhelming. Kevin must be getting tired. Oh, the strain of wielding Excalibur is showing. Oh, you're down to your last bat. But, you know, Mirth was Kevin's mentor. You know, the stakes are high. Maybe he's just making sure Kevin doesn't get cocky. You know, in fact, though, I mean, you add all this together, it is a constant barrage of undermining Kevin's faith his strength, even the vision about the wife and son at risk laying, you know, foreseeing disaster and heartache is laying the groundwork for convincing Kevin that he's being betrayed. Uh, other clues include his trouble climbing and walking when one might expect Mirth to float, as he is clearly in the flashback earlier in this series. But, you know, to go back to Hero Discovered, Mirth wasn't floating all the time. Now, what really bugged me was his negative talk, his constant references to the Pendragon, which, you know, was never really, Mirth always called Kevin, Kevin, uh, and the occasional somewhat evil smirking look on his face. Uh, one neat little hint that I only caught on rereads is how the Umbra Sprite disguised as Mirth uh, makes occasional mention about how opening doorways is just a matter of perception. And clearly the Umbra Sprite is a master of disguise and able to influence perception in more ways than just revealing doorways. I mean, remember, this is what the Umbra Sprite wants. So direct intervention is needed to get Kevin to the HQ. And frankly, this doesn't seem like the typical Mirth style to just lead Kevin so blatantly. Uh, you know, I'd have to check, but, you know, Mirth mentors, guides, advises, but he doesn't always necessarily outright just tell Kevin what to do, other than protect the light and get off your ass and be a hero. So let's be absolutely clear here. Kevin was not about to find his way to San Francisco on his own anytime soon. He hadn't even managed to leave his own home state. And the Umbra Sprite wanted, needed Kevin to get to its HQ. Uh, in a correspondence with John Petz, who sent a message raising his doubts about Mirth, 
you know, I had replied that I was pretty convinced that Mirth is the imp. But frankly, I really was still looking for a not Mirth third mage. And at the time I told John, I was still betting on Hugo as the third mage. Um, you know, although this whole series had apparently been pretty mageless, and I kind of wondered if maybe that was the point. You know, Kevin isn't the Pendragon here. No matter how much he self-identifies with that avatar, no matter the echoes of Arthur in this story, he isn't the Sumerian in this. He walked that path and the hero defined. So instead of just echoing some past mythic incarnation, I think here, as the story comes to a close, he's just Kevin Matchstick. In the same way Gilgamesh was Gilgamesh with his story, Arthur had his story, this is not an avatar echo. This is Kevin's story. This is the culmination of his heroic story. As I mentioned, John Petz had some interesting ideas after issue 13 about where some things were shaping up. Not quite trusting Mirth, he mentioned some specific possible clues in the dialogue and art. Um, so I'll share some of his comments with you here. If you go back over most of his dialogue in this issue, it has a potential double meaning. What is the mighty Pendragon without his trusty mage? The look on his face seems a bit off. Um, when he says, in fact, perce perceptive beyond her years, when Miranda says that's not how a mage is supposed to look. You know, Kevin and the reader might think that it's because Mirth doesn't look the part, but it could also mean he's a creature disguised as Mirth, that, you know, Miranda sees something off with him. Uh, he also noted the, you know, your fleeting stab through the sprite's vast shadow, you know, that you do think your fleeting stab at the sprite's vast shadow would amount to anything more than a pinprick to an elephant. And uh, John asks, is this a cautionary statement for Kevin not to underestimate his opponent or a mockery at everything Kevin has attempted or achieved? And then there's the look on his face when he says, It'll take more than one blow to dispel such a singular darkness. It may be an intense look, but it could be a sinister one. Uh, he also quotes, Things aren't always what they seem. And uh, John comments that this is another hiding in plain sight slash mocking comment. Um, when questioned about using his powers to open the portal, the Umber Sprite notes it's easy for him to do that. But maybe this creature has no power other than impersonation and being able to go back and forth between our world and the Umber Sprites, so it pretends to work mage-level magic. So at this point, I think, you know, John was wondering, you know, is this the Umber Sprite or is it some other creature? Is that a possibility? And then he shares, this is the biggest one, the horizontal panel where Mirth gestures for Kevin and his daughter to go forward as they're approaching the Citadel. They have their backs to him. And look at Mirth's face, pointy ear, mocking smile, slit eye. I thought maybe Wagner just did a bad drawing, but then I thought, this could be his life's work. Why would he get lazy or let something like this slide by? It's all deliberate. They have their backs to him. They're vulnerable in this shot, trusting. And what's Mirth doing? He's got an evil fucking grin on his face. I think it's deliberate. And look at what he says. Lead on then, O Pendragon. Let the siege begin. Isn't that twice he calls him O Pendragon? Did he ever used to do that? I don't think so. Especially since he knows Kevin doesn't just match up to one legendary hero. O Pendragon sounds mocking. And why the question about the bats? 
Why did Kevin have to tell the all-powerful mage about them? But most of all, that face. So, um, thanks again for for that and uh, and and your other emails, John. Um, you know, there's no doubt there's there's more to be unpacked there. But uh, this whole Mirth Umbra Sprite um, part of the story really allows for some great visual storytelling. Uh, rewards rereads uh, for dialogue. Uh, it's it, it really adds a nice dimension to it. So I'll leave it at this. You know, the portrayal of the Umbra Sprite in disguise as Mirth, you know, it made for a great guessing game. You know, all his comments were plausible enough. Arm wrappings from additional damage battling evil. Avoiding using green magic by claiming to be virtually tapped out. Black hair instead of white much like Joe Fat's hair having returned to its original color over time. It's a very delicate high-wire act, completely plausible given the amount of time since we had last seen him, and not having any idea just what he's been up to or may have been through, and yet leaving hints and clues here and there along the way for a return reading. Okay. There's a lot to go through. I'm not going to go through it page by page, panel by panel. Let's just look at the big muscle movements and actions here that follow after Kevin gets thrust through the portal into the very heart of the enemy's stronghold. Instead of going through things as they happen sequentially, I'm going to visit some of these by topic. And first up are the Gracklethorns. Kevin makes short work of the Umber Sprite's most recent brood. He takes Olga down with a charged-up right hook. He grabs Zofia by her wig's pigtails and just smashes her into the ground, again overflowing the monster with energy. And as he does this, he repeats a phrase that he has used multiple times in this series when battling nasties. It's a very distinct comment, and it's always the same. Silence, filth. Now, we might typically think of filth as something dirty, or in some uses, people might refer to filthy material, something obscene or offensive. But in this case, I think Kevin is using it in a manner more akin to the original meanings of the term. In Old English, filth refers to rotting matter, rottenness, or corruption, obscenity, something foul. Um, and that certainly would seem to refer to the uh, to the grackle thorns maybe matt just likes the ring of it but it is a phrase that kevin uses repeatedly magda takes out sasha after she uh, attacks magda's returned familiar cleo so cleo shows up and magda uses a star force charm to knock the grackle thorn out the window of the citadel from which uh, she it falls presumably to its death. It's a nice visual storytelling and action there in three panels with a small inset panel for a close-up of Magda's reaction before slaying the thorn. And Carol. Carol who seemed to have so much promise in her own way. Much as Emile. You know, Emile had initiative. Carol has had, I don't know, independence? for lack of a better term. I mean, she believed in the Umber Sprite, but didn't consider their victory a given, didn't have the same doubtless blind faith as her sisters. She was the only one who saw past Kevin's appearance to see the raw power he contained and wielded. And even here, at the final showdown, as the Umber Sprite spars verbally with Kevin, she, like Emil, tries to remind the Umber Sprite to focus on the prize. 
Stop debating. Sacrifice the Fisher King. I mean, the the, the Umber Sprite is kind of in monologue mode, and uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, Carol is kind of uh, a Scott Evil to her Doctor Evil, saying, "No, listen, stop, stop telling everybody what you're going to do. Just shoot him." But like Emil, uh, when her father doesn't act, her mother doesn't act. Rather, it doesn't act. She makes the same fatal mistake of trying to kill the Fisher King herself. Which, given everything she said earlier to her sisters about how they don't know how to properly sacrifice the Fisher King, etc., 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 you know, frankly, just seems very damn strange. Out of the blue, she decides that she's the favored one, the executor of her mother's dark dream, her will, and the Fisher King pretty much goads her along. I mean, he's strung up there in front of the open maw of whatever it is in that painting, telling her, go ahead. She's damned if she does, <laughs> damned if she doesn't. And he's right, of course. So all that doubt, even the slight glimmer of Carol possibly defying the Umbra Sprite, is gone. She attacks the Fisher King, and hell, he knows how this is going to play out. He's actually smiling as she comes at him, and her claws actually even pierce through his chest, only for her to be blown away in the resulting burst of energy exploding from the Fisher King. Similar to what happened in, in Hero Discovered when Emil attempted to kill the Fisher King when it was in the shape of a cat. However, where Emil's attack only resulted in the Grackle Flint being sorely injured and half melted by the blast, Carol is downright disintegrated. And that's really that's really a shame. I, I I've got to say... I was hoping I was hoping for potentially more from Carol, but there's only I guess there's only it's only 15 issues. We're down in the final showdown. Uh, I was expecting things to go differently with this here. I am. I just I don't understand her all of a sudden after the way she acted before. She just turns and and attacks him that way. It seems a little strange to me. But it's a great scene. It really is neat watching the Fisher King just goad her on and um, you know, obviously, Emil only just kind of pricked with its venom the, uh, you know, barely had a chance to do anything with, with this huge attack right in the middle of his chest, right at his heart. Uh, it's no surprise that Carol is just, she's blasted. She's just nothing but, you know, grackle thorn powder. Now, all of this activity with the thorns is really just background activity to the showdown between Kevin and the Umber Sprite. The Umber Sprite is back in its large, oily shade form, uh, seen at times as we'd seen it at times in Hero Discovered and at the end of Hero Defined. And a lot happens here, mostly in dialogue, as the two antagonists define each other in opposing attitudes. You know, Kevin offers not to battle the Umbra Sprite in return for his daughter's safety, while the Umbra Sprite evidences disgust at his selflessness and threatens to destroy Kevin's family. You know, the Umbra Sprite doesn't want to just defeat Kevin. It wants his despair. It wants to break him. So rather than actually battle or even attack Kevin, and who knows, maybe it can't, but the Umbra Sprite's initial threats are to his family, and namely the children, which, you know, you don't threaten somebody's children, man. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a social norm there, but if you're a parent, <laughs> you know, you, you don't mess with the children. But speaking of the children, 
Hugo returns to save his sister from the Umbra Sprite's clutches. Instead of having fallen to his death, he had actually put on that hat of invisibility that he had complained to his mom about and uses a magic light bulb blast to gain Miranda's release. Um, Ultimately, um, you know, threatening um, Magda, Hugo, and Miranda, you know, who uh, who the Umbra Sprite refers to as a tidy sacrifice. You know, so the whole family is in threat ultimately here. Because what the, what the Sprite wants is Kevin's despair. It wants to cause him agony. Uh, it wants him hopeless. And this becomes a running theme or a key to identifying the Umbra Sprite's core power and desire to sow fear and cause despair, the things that break joy and hope. You know, the Umbra Sprite at one point says to Kevin, your fate is hopeless, tiny sparkler. And this might be how the Umbra Sprite sees Kevin in his power, a spark of light. But you know what else we refer to as a spark? A spark of hope. And as we see it, Kevin is no mere sparkler and uh, far from hopeless. But the Sprite right now is complete in its self-assurance of victory. It even greets Kevin into its stronghold by warning him, your fire and fury will not avail you here. At last, after millennia, I hold you powerless. And we see that this might be the case, because Kevin is batless, and everything he tries to pick up to charge won't budge. As the sprite informs him, the sanctum is the core of my domain. You'll draw no weapon from what is mine. And Kevin, well, he's stuck. Weaponless. So as Kevin struggles to find something, anything with which to do battle, in a way trying to do the same damn thing he spent his entire heroic career doing, just finding ways to bash nasties, and this is the biggest, baddest nasty, is when the blue-robed imp arrives on the scene. And lo and behold... Now the little bugger can actually get out full sentences. Now, I'm going to spare you word-by-word repetitions of what the imp has to say, but the big thing is that all the singular words it had said, mysterious in their meaning, now have a joined context. Remember, previously, this imp would randomly tell Kevin, unleash Inferno, chaos and despair. Uh, So unleash the Inferno, a reference to Kevin's fiery power. Uh, It had also said, uh, you know, uh, so invocation was met by base betrayal. So that's a reference, I assume, to Kevin attempting to invoke mirth at the ATM and instead being betrayed by the disguised Umbra Sprite. How the hell the Umbra Sprite knew to hide in the Green River to await Kevin's summon... uh, I don't know. And finally, chaos and despair will reign unless you rise above it. And we know the Umbra Sprite desires chaos and despair. So what does it mean for Kevin to rise above? And you know, it's funny. In that scene in the forest, the imp keeps going higher and higher up into the trees, literally guiding Kevin higher up and up despite his fear of heights. Um, So as Kevin searches for something to use to battle the sprite, the imp finally tells him to stop trying to grab what he doesn't need. 
And this is classic Kevin when confronted with someone or something he doesn't expect telling him what to do, he just rejects it, telling the imp to just shut up. Until we get uh, that great callback line to issue 14 of The Hero Discovered as the imp asks him, Come now, Kevin. You have known me for a long, long time. And this bit happens in parallel with Carol's attack on the Fisher King. Mirth in his demon imp form, urging Kevin to let go. He doesn't need a weapon. Unleash the power. Release the inferno. Kevin doesn't need a weapon. He is the weapon. In a way, I guess this is what Mirth's Wally Ut uh, self was trying to get at when telling Kevin that he has to rise above bashing nasties, harbor the light, not condemn the dark. And of course, as Wally also said, the power is you. And you are not a bat. Nor is he a twig, a pebble, a hubcap, or any of the many things we've seen Kevin charge with Excalibur. As Wally said, Excalibur is the burning echo of Kevin's very soul. So we get this glorious moment as the Fisher King's energy burst turns Carol into dust. Kevin is getting brighter and brighter until he flares up in a brilliant white energy surrounded by lightning bolts as he unleashes the full power of Excalibur in a four-page gatefold. The blazing white of Kevin's unleashed energy on one side of the black, um, on one side of the black snake sludge umbra sprite, you know, reeling backwards on the other side. Kevin's family in the background, as uh, are the uh, floating imp mirth and the slightly fried looking eyeball of the painting monster watching on. And here we are, the final showdown. The following half page panel shows this scene from another angle. However, the Umbra Sprite has wrapped black, cold coils of snake-like ooze around Kevin's family. Now, repeatedly, the Umbra Sprite mentions having to cause Kevin despair, fitting again, considering the name of the Sprite's headquarter in its earthly manifestation was Archeron. As you may recall from earlier episodes, the river Archeron, one of the rivers of hell in Greek mythology, was known as the River of Woe. The black inky mass of the Umbra Sprite is taking up most of the panel, towering over Kevin's family. Cleo is still poised in flight before the Sprite, and Kevin Matchstick is completely ablaze with power, surrounded by a frenzy of electric crackling energy. You know, the Umbra Sprite warns Kevin to keep his distance, that if Kevin strikes at him, the Sprite will crush his family. But Imp Mirth urges Kevin counseling him a weapon strikes lightning strikes the inferno consumes uh, and we come closer in on kevin and the sprite face to face and with the full flush of his power upon him yet kevin tells the sprite that he can see through the threatening shadow he sees the raging void of the sprite and its fear its fear of hope the hope kevin's family brings him and as the sprite blusters and rages but notably doesn't take action against kevin or his family not even in flailing rage kevin completely absolutely absorbs the umbra sprite 
in a blinding burst of flaring energy. You know, it's a neat touch how we get the reverse image, the inverse image of Kevin here, so often in a black shirt and a white bolt. Instead, now he's stark bright white, washed out, almost invisible amid the light with a black bolt where he is drawing in the Umbra Sprite, the conflagration, the inferno consuming the monster. And this has been artistically foreshadowed from issue number one of the series, the cover showing a split Kevin matchstick. One half of him rendered as his typical physical appearance, with stylized lightning bolts behind him, and the other side simply his stark white outline, only the bolt has gone from white to black, and this energy silhouette is letting off crackling bolts of lightning energy. It's the same right down to the bluish tint of white energy, um, you know, on the figure of Kevin, the same bluish color used to define him amid this raging inferno of power. Um, You know, Kevin absorbs the Umbra Sprite, the darkness, the shadow. And, you know, before I get into that, it occurs to me also that, you know, um, the Umbra Sprite referred to Kevin as a sparkler and, and its power. You know, it's possible that this this inverse Kevin, this just this outline of energy surrounded by lightning, is very possibly all that the is is how Kevin has always appeared, you know, when showing up on the Ember Sprites radar. That that's just how he shows up. So then, you know, as I said, Kevin absorbs the Ember Sprite, the darkness, the shadow, and you know, damned if there isn't an echo here of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. Now, two of Jung's major archetypes are the persona and the shadow self. Persona is how we wish to be seen by the world, what we want to be, the conscious, purposefully willing mind and identity. And the shadow self, on the other hand, is an archetype of the unconscious mind. It's built of instincts, impulses, weaknesses, desires, perversions, and fears. It's everything the conscious mind, the rational world, the civilized world wants to repress. This is the dark side of the psyche. It represents the wild chaos and the unknown. You know, another way of looking at what comprises the shadow are the base instincts of the wild and pure natural state just separated from the rational civilized world. But these instincts haven't disappeared. They're typically buried, ignored, denied, denied, and emerge then in sudden, unpredictable, and indirect manners. Mythologically, and in stories both old and new, the shadow returns. The shadow is, you know, Jekyll to Hyde, Vader to Luke. So a big part of Jungian psychology and older traditions is bringing together the light and the dark, the persona and the shadow self. Uh, Many ancient uh, shamanic teachings involve preparation uh, towards an illness or a spiritual death by ascending into your own darkness or your shadow self and being reborn in an attempt to um, provide you with the experience and insight to heal yourself and bring that healing wisdom to the people of your tribe. And this, of course, echoes Joseph Campbell's observations of the mythically recurring hero's journey. So, you know, in psychology, Jung introduces um, actively acknowledging one's darker side and taking control of it. According to Jung, it produces a stronger, wider awareness or consciousness than before. Confronting your dark side leads to a stronger, more balanced individual. And returning to Joseph Campbell, 
Well, he points to the story of the frog prince to illustrate the shadow and how confronting and accepting it is necessary for transformation. Now, in this story, a princess is confronted on three separate occasions by the frog. On the first two visits, she is repulsed, but she relents on the third occasion and kisses the frog, who is then transformed into a prince. According to Campbell, the frog is the shadow, the kiss is the acceptance of it, and the prince is the reward. This is what Kevin does. He kisses the frog. No. Um, when this series starts, Kevin is on the run from the shadow. He's in hiding, and it's eating away at him. He doesn't know what he should be doing, but he knows he isn't doing it. But by the end, he recognizes and names the Umbra Sprite for what it is. He consumes it, accepts it, quite literally takes it into himself. And boy, at this point, Kevin is wiped out, falling to the floor. And for a moment before rising to reunite with his family, he's just, he's down. And this is the first time we've seen them all together since issue number six. It's a great reunion. Uh, and not the only one, as the imp finally reveals itself to be Mirth. Now remember, one of Mirth's names is Merlin. He was Arthur's counsel, his mentor, his wizard. And in some versions of the Arthurian cycle, he's represented as being a child of two worlds. I think I mentioned this in an earlier episode, born of a human woman and a demon. Some, in fact, say of the devil himself. In Hero Discovered, Mirth had submerged himself in the Green River to hide from the Umbra Sprite so as to not give away the location of his heroic companions. The Umbra Sprite was able to track his green flash, so Mirth had to hide away. In a reverse of this, in Hero Defined, uh, Matt playfully subverted the superhero genre by having Wally Ut work as Kevin's secret identity. Whenever Wally is with Kevin, the enemy cannot track him cannot see him. It's the opposite of the situation with Mirth. And here, Mirth explains that he yet again had to disguise his green aura, entering a fugue state that hid any trace of green magic. But as a side effect, it reverted him to a manifestation of the dark fairy side of his lineage, or as he puts it, a wild child. Now, there are some nice touches here. Mirth again chiding Kevin for having to see things to believe them. Uh, we saw this before when Mirth revealed himself to be Wally, Kevin mentioning the lack of bubbles, and Mirth's reply, you like the bubbles, here are some bubbles. I mean, hey, it's Mirth. This is Mage. We all like the bubbles. And we get child Mirth, completing a cycle of youth, adulthood, and old age. Uh, it's a little odd seeing the typically lean-faced Mirth with a little baby fat on him, but I, uh, I got a small chuckle out of seeing his uh, chubby fingers making Doctor Strange-esque motions. Uh, Matt ties up some loose ends here in the denouement. We learn the questing beast was supposed to lead Kevin to Mirth, but in his fugue state, Mirth was clearly unable to communicate or act effectively, um, crying out those cryptic words that, sure enough, held the key to Kevin defeating the Umbra Sprite. Still the mentor... Still the teacher, just smaller, more um, devilish. Uh, there's some discussion of how being a parent is a heroic life, but yes, Kevin is done with being a hero. 
The Fisher King has already moved on. Like the Lone Ranger, his work here is done. That's a shame. I would have liked to have seen some dynamic between King and Champion. But the Fisher King's exchanges with the Gracklethorns, his artwork on his panels are just so good, it's really hard to bitch and moan too much about it. And then we get to the monster in a box, or rather in a picture frame. Kevin and Mirth in front of that sharp-toothed, one-eyed whatever, indeed with its own kind of crackling electricity coming from it, Mirth identifies this as the Umbra Sprite's mother, confined from the beginning of time to its cell, prevented from entering this world, a jail cell from which the Umbra Sprite sought to break her free and bring about the reign of despair. Uh, the Umbra Sprite's mother is, in fact, another callback among many to the uh, to the hero defined to Kevin's uh, or, or um, a hero discovered to Kevin's Arthurian history. This is Quirhanak, hatched deep inside the molten core of the earth when the planet was just a swirling mass of vapors, rocks, and water. This, the mother of demons, set her children across the planet to bring chaos and evil wherever they went. And these children, these demons, some say even the devil himself, what did they look like? Well, they often took the form of snakes. Indeed, they are the very snakes that St. Patrick drove from Ireland, precipitating a battle royale between St. Patrick and Quiranach herself. So about those snakes, starting in the Hero Defined, we started seeing snakes around the Pale Encanter, Emil. In issue number three, they start to show up. In fact, he's sleeping atop a mound of huge black shadow snakes. He even actually grabs one by the throat and speaks into its open mouth to communicate with his lead, Sprigginflint, his offspring, Sigmund. I would imagine named after the famed Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, given the Jungian overtones in Mage, carryovers in many ways from how Jung's work resonates with Joseph Campbell's cross-cultural, shared mythical world. It's neat to see this nod to Jung's frenemy, his professional rival, if you will, with whom he eventually split with on their views of the unconscious libido and behavior. And boy, oh boy, Hero Defined is full of libido. No doubt an in-depth revisit, keeping this particular perspective in mind, could result in a potential treasure trove of Easter eggs. But back to the snakes. Hero Defined is rife with them. And of course, in the conclusion of that book, we see how they eventually gather and coalesce to form the returned Umbra Sprite. And in issue number seven of Hero Denied, of course, we see the Umbra Sprite proclaim that it is transfixed by a troubling manifestation, the advent of another provocative force, a presence the Umbra Sprite hasn't felt in many years. And a side effect of this is the Umbra Sprite's transformation from its human form into a pile of writhing shadow snakes. So what could have caused that? You know, at first I thought, Given the connection to the snakes in Hero Defined that somehow, I don't know, maybe Emil was going to return. I was really on the bandwagon about that. But no, that's certainly not the case. What disrupted the Umbra Sprite so much? I mean, the only immediate actions that had taken place was the battle between Kevin and the Yowler Ogre and the capture of Magda and Hugo. 
But if we go back one day, we see Kevin first meeting Mirth in his uncontrollable wild child state. And while we get no green magic, we do have the meeting of mage and hero, just shy of halfway through the story. Maybe the sheer proximity of the two having come in contact was enough to begin rousing Mirth from his fugue state to allow some of his green to seep out. Just enough to be sensed by the Umbra Sprite, catch it unaware and trigger this transformation. That meeting does happen in the previous issue, so let's figure it happens just under 12 to 15 hours ago, you know, from the end of issue 7 where we see the Umbra Sprite transformed. It's a relatively short period of time in the story, so I don't know, I'm open to any thoughts other readers might have, but I, I think that's what triggers it. Whatever the deal is here, the connection between the Umber Sprite and the Umber Sprite's offspring to Quirhanak is clear enough. The form of a snake or snakes would be appropriate for the Umber Sprite as a child of the Quirhanak. This extends from the Umber Sprite most directly to the dragons we've encountered, the Black Serpent of the Cairn and Krom Kruach. Both snakes. Now in legend... St. Patrick drove these monsters, the demonic offspring of Quiranach, from the Emerald Isle. Thus began a fight between her and St. Patrick on the top of a mountain, battling for two days and two nights before the Quiranach retreated from the mountain to the safety of a lake. Now, as, uh, as is often the case with tales like these, there are often many versions. Some say the saint and the mother of all demons sank to the dark depths of the lake, locked in combat. She swallowed him whole, but he cut himself free from inside her. Quirinoch's venomous blood filled the lake, giving it its name, Loch Durg, the Dark Lake. Other versions say that Patrick banished her into the underworld with a single word. She was lifted from the water and slammed down with such force that it created a great wave a wave so great that the surrounding lands were covered in water for over a decade. Either way, she's not been seen on Ireland since that day. But in the legend, as in Mage, she's not dead, nor is she banished. She's simply waiting, just as she did when time began. Her demon spawn still roamed the earth, and her son still sits upon his throne of brimstone and fire, in many ways, that sets the stage for the Mage Trilogy, the villain's backstory, if you will. But in a similar manner to her fate in Legend, Mirth uses his magic to shrink the prison cell picture frame, and the mother of all demons remains contained. For now. And with all that exposition taken care of, the big bad contained and managed... Kevin finally introduces Mirth to his family, and while I get it, this is a comic, we're not going to spend a bunch of time on trading old war stories, catching up, exchanging recipes, and whatnot, we really only get one frame of, hey, let's just hang out and be chill. Uh, in that frame, though, we get some nice touches, Miranda exclaiming how Mirth is actually floating, Magda telling Mirth that she knew him as Wally. Mirth uses a flash of green to attend to the family's injuries and wardrobe. And, uh, you know, all that shuck and jive from the Umbra Sprite aside, clearly Mirth has no problems or limits to using his magic. And even as child Mirth, the expressions we get from Mirth are much more fitting to the character than many we saw during the Umbra Sprite's deception. 
and it's time to wrap up a few more loose threads as Mirth lets the family know that Hugo is tainted. He has eaten fairy food and is bound to the confines of the fairy realm in this keep. And and we knew this was coming. He was warned not to eat it. He ate it anyways. Uh, And this news presages the arrival of the hunter and the hounds, come to claim another whose life Kevin couldn't or wouldn't save. Um, In fact, of course, having come for Hugo. Uh, Mirth is powerless to help. A nice touch, since too much mirth, too much mage, can work like a uh, a deus ex machina and solve every challenge far too simply. Our heroes would have nothing to hero about. So Kevin uses the last blast of his power, the last spark of Excalibur, to burn the taint from his son, which is cool. The, The hero is over. Uh, But as I mentioned earlier, Wally had said that Excalibur, the power, was but a burning reflection of Kevin's soul. I'm surprised that the power can pass from him in such a way, since it seemed so intrinsically tied to him. More on that later. The hunter isn't appeased. Hugo is in the clear. But the hunter now claims Kevin, as he first did in The Hero Discovered. But whereas Kevin had been able to drive the hunter away in the past with his power, his denial of guilt, he has no power to do this now. Thankfully, however, Magda's got something she's been holding on to for most of the story. The protection elixir they were going to use to secure the family's Camelot um, to keep it safe from magical threat. And more than that, she still has her ring imbued with a spark of Kevin's magic. And there's just another sweet panel here of Magda saying, just call me Mrs. Matchstick, and Kevin replying, God, I love you. And this is the first time we really see anyone using that name. You know, remember, Kevin's been under deep cover. He's been Mr. Hunter, most likely, having taken Magda's name, very forward-leaning. The family gathers, the couple kisses, and working as a team, Kevin tosses the vial of elixir into the air for Magda to wield the final blast of Excalibur's power. I like that. It's a nice touch. And this keeps her, again, from just being another onlooker as the story winds to a close. The family is bathed in silver bluish bright magic. The protection of the elixir, supercharged by the spark of Excalibur, is enough to drive the hunter and hounds away. And so here we are at the end. Magda asks Miranda about her amazing cloak, Brother and sister exchange high fives. Frankly, there are some really good Hugo and Miranda moments in this whole final confrontation that I've just glossed past. So consider this my nod to them. These two are just a great pair. And Kevin and Mirth say their goodbyes. The two are unlikely to meet again. And that's a damn shame if you ask me. Um, Just a little, too little time spent together here. And Mirth sends the family back to the ordinary world to one last gift from the little green card to their Camelot, a brand new house with an Edsel 9 parked in the garage. And a nice touch, uh, the sign in front of the house reads, Green River Realty. As we close with the family in front of the house, 
Miranda still in possession of her magical cloak of disguise, chasing the normal cat-looking Cleo, who she is now named Domino. Hugo is in his lightning bolt chucks and has a lightning bolt, bolt hoodie. Uh, Kevin and Miranda are holding on to one another as Kevin exclaims, it's good to finally be home. And this is something you just don't get in comic books. A down-to-earth happy ending, a family together, and oh, hey, the colors on that last page. We get some more of those awesome sunset tones that Brennan had on display way back in issue number three. And wow. You know, that's it. I mean, I almost can't believe we're here. You know, Mage, the trilogy is complete. But before closing this episode out, stick around for a few more moments. I've, I've got some news about another special upcoming episode after these thoughts about the overarching mythical structure of how the hero denied comes to a close. You know, I've talked before about how the Mage series mirrors Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. It's something Matt has discussed in numerous interviews, how he only learned of Campbell's heroic structure after having written The Hero Discovered and was blown away at how closely his work paralleled these mystical rhythms, these mythical uh, rhythms, themes, and story beats. My words, not his, but you get the idea. By coincidence or design, the echoes of the hero's journey are all over the place in Hero Denied, especially in the last few issues, as Kevin approaches the Umbra Sprite Citadel. The end of the hero's journey. The final stages are approaching the inmost cave, the place where the hero will face their greatest challenge. As the hero approaches the inmost cave, they typically have to pass through three thresholds and defeat the gateway guardians, we see Kevin do this he is, as he encounters the uh, two-headed dragon at the entrance to the citadel. Uh, there's another challenge of overwhelming monstrous combatants, which we catch the tail end of. And finally, facing and defeating uh, Awartach before approaching the entrance to the inmost cave, the Umbra Sprite's office. The hero then engages in their ultimate ordeal, where they face a life-and-death crisis They face their greatest fear. They confront their most difficult challenge and even die as they are on the edge of failure. Certainly, facing the Umber Sprite, unable to use any sort of weapon to attack, his family in mortal peril, Kevin is in his ultimate battle, and the stakes have truly never been higher. And afterwards, a death, the death of the hero, as Kevin uses the last of his power to purge the taint of the fairy food from his son. Um, you know, as an aside, I've only listened to one of Matt's post-finale interviews before recording this, and one of the interviewers, I forget who it is at this moment, I'm sorry, points out that in a way this qualifies as a parallel to Arthur's history of being killed by his son-slash-nephew, Mordred. In a way, a part of Kevin dies, the hero dies, as a result of an action by his son. But back to the hero's journey. This death is necessary, for it is from this which the hero is reborn, and is able to claim their reward. A sword, an elixir, knowledge, rejoining a lover, and so on. And Kevin does so in multiple ways. The protection elixir Magda crafted earlier in the series, which she has carried, is one reward. Reuniting with Magda, his lover, and his family... Those are other rewards. 
The protection of the family from all magic is yet another. And finally, the hero returns to the ordinary world, bringing with them the gift they have gained. In this case, what could better represent a return to the ordinary world than, like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, to go home? So while I understand that Matt's approach to writing Mage is very loose, very zen, unplanned, unscripted, I don't know how many of these beats are planned out or just naturally arise from the natural growth of Kevin's journey itself as Matt works on the story. Either way, he hits these beats of the hero's journey perfectly. And I think that's part of what makes his whole series, Discovered, Defined, and Denied, resonate with people so much. It has layers. Underneath the top storyline, the top level, Mage has roots that go all the way back to the dawn of storytelling. And that's something, for me at least, that's deeply satisfying. I don't want to speak for others, but I would hazard that it's those mythical echoes, not even the explicit Arthurian and Sumerian stuff, but just the story beats of the hero's journey that make this story ring true. In some ways, I enjoy it intellectually, but in the deepest ways, it feels right on a gut instinct level. So one last announcement before wrapping this up. The next episode will be an interview with Matt Wagner, so keep your eyes peeled for when that update comes across whatever podcast app you use. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts you'd like to share, please do. If I get enough comments and thoughts, I'll do a special listener commentary episode. Anything is game as a topic. Obviously open to thoughts about the series finale or thoughts about how the whole story came together things you may have noticed now that the trilogy is completed, and so on. Uh, Also, feel free, um, if I get in questions by, let's say, the 23rd of June, I'll see about including any questions I receive in the interview with Matt Wagner. Anything is game as a topic, and actually, you know what, just to be safe, let's actually make that the 21st of June. Um, I'll see if I can include any questions in the interview with Matt Wagner. So again, you know, anything is game. If you want to share comments, that uh, that listener commentary episode uh, will come in after the interview. Um, please visit Mage the Hero Described where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage Comics, and all kinds of stuff at the website, while images and scenes mentioned in the podcast are typically at Mage Hero Described at Instagram. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks and especially rate and review it on iTunes. As I've said before, it really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks. And until next time, stay excellent.